Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Serena Richard, who is the founder and CEO of Hurdle Health. Hurdle Health is a venture-backed healthcare platform in India, and through curated content and an AI chatbot, they provide access to sexual health information and resources for women in India. And in this episode, Serena shares how she started Hurdle Health, why she decided to make it a for-profit company versus going the non-profit route. She had actually started a number of different organizations previously and built on that experience to then start Hurdle Health. We discuss all of that and much, much more in this episode of the podcast. As always, the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. And to check out Hurdle Health, see what they're up to, it's spelled H-E-R-D-L-E dot health. You can learn more there. They're hiring now, also raising funding. Find out more there. Without further ado, here is Serena Richard, the founder and CEO of Hurdle Health. Serena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Yes, happy to have you on. And uh, there's always so much to discuss. Um, where I'd like to get started, uh, thinking of Hurdle, Hurdle Health, where did this start? Like, where did this idea come from to even start this company? Yeah, so this has been an idea that's been brewing in my head for probably 15 years. Honestly, <laughs> I've, uh, I've I've had 15 years of work experience in healthcare. So I've done everything from investment banking to management consulting to healthcare private equity. I worked on the provider side for a while. So I've really done everything in healthcare except being a physician myself. Um, <laughs> And then what you really don't see on LinkedIn or on my resume is the 15 years that I've spent in women's development around the world. So I've worked in everything from microfinance lending for women in Peru. I started a nonprofit in South Texas to help kids get access to the educational system, specifically for migrant migrant workers. Um, and then most recently was working with victims of human trafficking on the borders of India and Nepal. So actually taking the women out of the brothels, rescuing them, rehabilitating them back in society, and then providing them ways to support themselves um, in a more traditional format. And so I spent a lot of time just working in both areas. And I've also just spent a lot of time traveling throughout uh, the developing world, but specifically in India. So my grandfather is originally from Chennai, um, which is in the southeast of India. And over the last 10 years, I've traveled just all throughout Rajasthan, Leh, Ladakh, Chandigarh, down to Varanasi, Calcutta, Goa, Mumbai. I was living in Bangalore for three months last year. <laughs> and I've always just been so inspired by the women there. Um, not only just the energy with which they live their lives, but how they really are the heart and the soul and the brain and the stomach uh, and the backbone of society. But unfortunately, one thing in India is there's just this massive social stigma around certain key aspects and particularly healthcare. So when it comes to healthcare, there's a lack of access to information and a lack of access to resources. Um, so for example, sexual education is banned in eight states. Oh, wow. Only 50% of like your tier one women. So these are women who live in Delhi, Mumbai, Bangalore, who, you know, have been to college. They own their own financial flows. They're really smart, educated women. And only half of them have ever even been to a gynecologist. Um, and then the biggest, the biggest thing that kept coming up through all of my travels and just talking to women. So at this point, I think I've spoken to over a thousand women, tier <laughs> um, one cities, and 100% of them have some story about being shamed or embarrassed by trying to access the healthcare system. So it could be as simple as I'm trying to make an appointment with a gynecologist. I just don't know where to go. I don't know where to find one. I don't know how to access it all the way to, let's say they make an appointment with a gynecologist. They go into the office and the receptionist asks them, well, why are you here? And the, and the woman will say, well, I'd like to speak to a gynecologist about that. And the receptionist will say, well, you're an unmarried woman. So there's no reason for you to be here because there's no way you're having premarital sex. So you should just leave. Jeez. Right. It's horrible. 
um, and in a crowded room, right? In, in a waiting room. Or let's say she makes it into the gynecologist's room. Let's say she's married. Well, at that point, then the gynecologist might say, well, you're married. Why aren't you pregnant yet? You should be doing your duty as, as a wife and as a woman to have as many babies as possible. What's wrong with you? Right. So this experience is just so, so horrible. And the shame and embarrassment that they can receive across all aspects of the healthcare system really prevents women from even wanting to access it at all. And then even from buying something as simple as a sanitary napkin, which is something that women everywhere have to buy. <laughs> every woman who's not in menopause gets her period every single month. It's yep. That's nature. And being able to even buy something as simple as a sanitary pad is really difficult. So a woman I've watched, I've watched so many women go into stores. They'll never buy the sanitary napkins on its own. They'll put it in five or six other things. They'll hide it in the middle. They'll walk up to the front counter. The person at the front counter is usually a man who will not make eye contact with her. (laughs) They will take the sanitary napkins, put it in a brown paper bag, or in a newspaper and slide it to her underneath the table like she's buying drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've I've noticed all of these things and it's this is just something I've I think I've just been a part of for the past 10, 15 years. And for a while I thought, well, this this is probably just gonna be a nonprofit that I'm gonna form later on. But then I came up with different business models for it and I started to test those out. And I started to see, wow, actually there's something here. A couple of light bulb moments came. And from there I decided, you know what? I'm going to do it. So that's how and why I started it. That is an incredible story, Serena, and so much to dig into with that. With with having multiple business models you thought of for this, what were some of those things you were thinking of? I'm curious. Yeah. So what I really wanted to do was fix the problem. So a big part of this was actually just understanding the real problem. So pulling away the layers of the onion to really get at it. And I think, you know, something a lot of entrepreneurs do is this five whys, which is such a simple concept and it's such a <laughs> yep. simple exercise, but it's actually super powerful because a lot of times I think people are trying to fix problems that either aren't there or their solution actually creates more problems or they're not really getting at the crux of the issue. And so specifically with this problem, you know, you could point to a lot of things. You could say, oh, the gynecologists are judgy. Okay, well, why is that? You know, maybe there's some issues with the way that gynecologists are trained. Okay, that might be one part of it. But where does that come from? Why is that? Well, if you, if you just kind of keep pulling down the onion, pulling apart of the onion, you see that from very young age, there's just this social stigma that pervades society and being able to talk about it in the way that women are treated and the way that girls are treated compared to their brothers or compared to other men, right? So it's everything from the fact that if you are pregnant, it's illegal to find out the sex of the baby in India before you give birth. Why? Infanticide is such a big problem because they don't want girl babies. Now, that problem has kind of been fixed a little bit, right, just with education and the realization that you actually need women and girls to continue society. (laughs) Yeah. Really stems from this, you know, really deep entrenched idea that men are the ones that will be able to make money and also support the family. And then there's also the dowry system. When women and men get married, a woman's family has to pay the man's family in order to get married. So there's a lot of like social reasons behind this, but if you really focus on healthcare and why healthcare is not accessed, the real reasons behind it are that women just don't prioritize themselves. Now, again, some of that is just the way that women have been raised, right? To not prioritize themselves or to prioritize everyone else first. But if you think about how can we fix that? So there's changing mindsets, there's changing behaviors, which is just so difficult to do. But there's also just providing or working within the system itself, right? And being able to provide access to those resources in a way that's convenient and easy and safe for her so that she doesn't really have to change her behaviors so much as just recognize, hey, this is something that I can do. 
It doesn't really take up much more of my time. I can access it from my mobile phone. It's convenient for me. And oh, by the way, the privacy and security is there. So no one else has to know what's going on with me. And so really what I really was focused on was figuring out what the real problems were and then finding solutions for those problems, as opposed to just creating a solution that didn't really match anything. Understanding that this is something, I mean, you've kind of been involved with or just been looking at, you mentioned for for a long time, like 15 years or something, just in the, in the space or and you you've been around this, you've been learning, you've been having conversations, you've, uh, you've been making an impact in other ways, and you've started like a nonprofit before. And how did you decide, like, I want to go a little bit deeper on the deciding to go with this as a company versus a nonprofit, a little different model there. How did you think through that as you were thinking about hurdle health? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, because this could very easily just be a nonprofit. Yeah. You know, I've been involved in the nonprofit space and the development space for so long. And, you know, the one thing, and this isn't a knock on nonprofits because nonprofits absolutely need to exist. But what I find is that some of the, I guess, appetite for execution or appetite to push certain boundaries is just harder with nonprofits. Yeah. With for-profits, I mean, if you, of course, there's a balance between being a moneymaker and particularly with this kind of environment, right, where it's social impact, um, you know, there is still a fine line between just being able to charge a whole bunch of money. That's not really what this is about. This is really about the volume of women, right? So there's 100 million women in India who have access and use mobile phones. That's a massive, massive market. And yeah. even if you if you have a couple of dollars that each of those women spend, that's that's over a billion dollar market. So for me, it was like, well, from a nonprofit perspective, there's a lot of nonprofits that already exist in India and they're doing excellent, great work. But I think the ability that a for-profit can have over a nonprofit is just in having a little bit more flexibility on attacking and, and penetrating a market in a way that's more sustainable. Um, you know, you're thinking about more sustainable business models because you're thinking about how to sustain your profit and how to make profit. And I think you can take a little bit more risk um, as well as just push the boundaries a little bit more on how you are serving that market with a for-profit. Yeah. And I think it's a good point. You make kind of distinguishing between the two. And obviously, that you know, there's nothing wrong with a nonprofit. They're doing amazing work, clearly. And uh, just one, one shout out I have to give is Rob Mather from the Against Malaria Foundation, which is actually one of the top rated charities in the world. He was on the show in episode 108. And in terms of executing on a nonprofit, but like like a for-profit company, that's just one example to look at, just using uh, rigorous data and analytics and understanding what the actual impact is. But clearly not every nonprofit would be doing that like a for-profit would because there's more, uh, I don't know if there's more accountability or what it is behind it, but there's something to that. And, and understanding that this is a problem you saw, you were understanding this through conversations you were having with people, getting a feel for what the problems they were experiencing, what they actually were by asking why multiple times in a row, which is also something that's been echoed before. Uh, I remember, I think it was Candace, uh, Candace Liu from On-Prem Solutions was mentioning that in a previous episode. But understanding all of that then, what was the first few things you did to create this company to decide who was going to help you with this, what this would actually look like? Because there's so many different ways you can go about that. I'm just curious as to what that initially looked like for you. Yeah. The first thing I really did was I got myself over there and I just lived there for a while. Um, so I'm originally from the US. I, I also grew up in Singapore. And then I, you know, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of time in India. Yeah. But I really just wanted to since I figured out that this is what I wanted to do, I just got over there and started speaking to every single person that I met. <laughs> so I would sit in a coffee shop and just every single woman that walked in, I would interview them or talk to them. Um, and, you know, luckily a lot of women said, sure, I'd love to talk to you about this. <laughs> or going onto a college campus and just sitting there all day and talking to every single woman that walked past. Um and so, you know, a lot of it was just like getting the perspective of the user and really understanding what it was that stopped them from accessing the healthcare system. But then also if they had a, and one of my favorite questions I like to ask users is if you had a crystal ball and you could create anything, 
what would it be? What would you do? Like, what would make your life easier if you could create something? Because I think there's so many great ideas that actually come from the user. And if you give them the ability to just be creative, it's amazing what kind of solutions you can get out of that. Um, So that was really the first thing I did was just get inside the mind of my user. One thing I was just curious, real quick, on on when you're asking these people like in coffee shops or other stuff, I mean, what were you, what were you saying? Like, hey, I have an idea for something. Can I talk to you? Like, what were you saying to get that conversation started? I'm just curious. That's exactly it. That was, I mean, it was nothing more complicated than just, hey, I've got this idea. I'd love to chat with you guys if you have a couple of minutes. And and then it was just, uh, so I'm working on this healthcare idea. Uh, you know, how many times do you use the healthcare system? How many times have you been to a gynecologist? Um, you know, do you know anyone who's been to a gynecologist? Why have you gone? Why have you not gone? Um, Mm, yeah, really the beginning of it is just, Hey, I've got this idea. Can you have a couple (laughs) minutes to spare with me? I have this idea. I swear I'm not crazy. I'm just a normal yeah. person trying to make an impact. Just one of the minutes of your time. Okay, that's incredible. Yeah. What was the second thing? Sorry, I interrupted. But the second thing you were going to say. One thing I will say about that first piece, just to finish that up, is <laughs> yeah, yeah. something that could be nerve-wracking to a lot of people is walking up to a stranger and asking these questions. First of all, you cannot understand your user without actually talking to your user. But the other thing, too, is that it's awkward for like maybe five seconds, right? <laughs> initial awkwardness immediately goes away. And once they realize that you're not crazy and (laughs) actually are interested in what they have to say, then it's a fantastic conversation, right? You can just get so much information from them as long as you feel like, you know, I'm just going to feel awkward for 10 seconds, but then it'll be over. It's a horrible 10 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. I understand. I understand. understand. No, I've definitely done my fair share of that type of thing as well. And and had the echo on the show where people are either cold. I mean, I I always go back to this example, but uh, Cole Zucker going door to door selling light bulbs for his company, Green Creative early on. I mean, literally just like waiting outside a warehouse to talk to people (laughs) to like sell them light bulbs was like insane. Like he did for a year uh, and built his company into like a $65 million company. But that getting past that discomfort Mm-hmm. Of what a few seconds of mm-hmm. you know, discomfort for a huge payoff potentially, uh, yeah. in terms of helpfulness is, is huge. But then, yes, uh, going back then, a couple points you're making. Uh, the second point you're going to make, yeah, the second point was so there's the user perspective and just being like voraciously interested in what they have to say and in what they experience. But the second piece of my platform is feeling the same way about the supply side. So the physicians. So really understanding from them what's going on. Why does this (laughs) exist from their perspective? And what are the problems that they face? And that was equally as important because what I learned is, sure, there is some stigma that's involved in their training. But the other thing that goes on with the physicians in India is that there's not enough of them and there's so much demand. So physicians and specifically gynecologists can see hundreds of patients a day. Like, could you imagine that if you had to spend your entire day just nonstop patients are flowing in and out? It's just not sustainable. Yeah, not at all. But it's also like, I mean, anybody wouldn't do great in that situation. (sighs) So if they're just having to be really quick, they're looking for ways that they can decrease the amount of patients they have to see. And they want to be able to spend more time with patients, but there's just not enough time in the day. So understanding from them, what were their major pain points? And I think that was equally as important because what really came out of that was understanding that, hey, you know, physicians, they're people too. They have their own lives. They have their own families. No one else in the world or in any other, uh, you know, any other job would be required to work nonstop (laughs) 24 (laughs) hours a day. And, but because they have chosen the profession that they've chosen, unfortunately, that's the way they're treated also because there's just not enough of them. So also building a solution that's for them where they feel like they're heard where they feel like they can actually access a lot of patients at one time. Because the reality is that for gynecology, sure, there are patients that need to be seen in person. There's actually a lot that you do not need to be in person for. So about 80% of their cases can actually be done via telehealth or via chat. 
It's only the time that they want to spend with the critical cases or doing pap smears, right? Those are the ones that need to be in person. But the other ones, they can talk to for 15 minutes or have a chat, a text chat over and answer these basic questions, get them the access and information they need, and they're done. So the second piece was really about understanding the supply side and from their perspective, what's wrong with the system. And with that then, so understand that you have both sides of that. It's obviously the patient and also looking at the physicians. What did you see as, okay, what is this platform going to do? And then like, what is this platform going to be? Like, how are you going to organize that between them? Because there's so many ways you can go about it with, with having the chat function, with having, uh, whether it be a telehealth solution within that, with having content you're creating as well, so to have educate people on it. Like, how did you think about what this platform would all kind of entail and like the initial, the first things you would do with that? Because there's so many things to build out potentially. Yeah. So what we really did was we um, understood from the physician perspective, what can be done ahead of time before I actually talk to a physician. And my idea was to essentially digitize all of that. So there's basic information that you can get on a blog. There's an AI chat bot where we worked with a team of 15 gynecologists and actually created the diagnosis flows. So there are certain symptoms that you have that mean certain things. And so it's a more accurate form of Google. And the reason we wanted to do something like that was one, to not only take some of those conversations online that a physician would be having in the beginning of the conversation with a woman, but also a woman is used to Dr. Google. We've all used Dr. Google and we've (laughs) all gotten the answer. You just have cancer, right? Yeah, of course. So this was a way to actually provide some information that a woman could access easily. She's already used to, she already trusts that type of, of platform, but then it's actually more accurate. So she can get a real answer. And then the other, uh, the other solution that we came up with was a health hour. So a lot of people have sit on webinars and a lot of people now, especially with coronavirus, definitely sit on webinars all the time. And so what we decided to do was to create a multidisciplinary care approach model uh, called health hours. And so for different topics, we have a team of physicians across different specialties that come and talk about that subject so that information sharing is there. That building of trust is there because the user can see, okay, this physician is awesome. She's super great. She's super knowledgeable. She's got at least 10 years of experience in this particular topic. Oh, and she's non-judgy. Awesome. So they can come, they can learn. And then the other half of the panel discussion is a live Q&A and the attendees are anonymous. So they can come and ask questions anonymously so they can still have that privacy but also get their questions answered immediately, which is key to this. Then once that happened, the funnel kind of keeps trickling down. So once you join one of these health hour sessions, you actually get to meet the physician, right? So you get to know who you're going to speak to, that trust is built. Then you can book a session with her. So let's say you just need a quick diagnosis or a quick chat. You can book a 15-minute chat. You can also book a 30-minute chat or an hour-long chat, depending on what you want, what what you need. And you already know the physician, so that's easy. Then the rest of it is really just providing this end-to-end solution, so a 360-degree approach. We have relationships with one of the major lab companies, Pan India, that has distribution everywhere, so you can book a lab test. And one of the beautiful things about India is their massive appetite and acceptance of technology. So in India, you can book a lab test, and a phlebotomist will come to you Take a lap, take a urine sample, take a blood test. You never even have to leave your house. And then within 24 hours, you get an answer about what that lab test is. Whoa. Amazing, right? Yeah. Similarly with pharmaceuticals and with products. So all direct to consumer, you can book and pay for things online, and then it's just delivered directly to your door. It's incredibly simple and easy. So the idea is really to provide this end-to-end solution from the information, trust sharing, all the way through to the exact products and services they they need in one place. Understanding that this is, I mean, the end-to-end solution makes so much sense for, especially for this particular case with what they need. I mean, it's, it's, there's so much you can offer with that and really just be a trusted brand within, within that space as well. Understanding all these things that you need to build within this, was this bootstrapped, venture-backed? How did you uh, fund this? What were you thinking about for, from that perspective of the business? Yeah. So we are currently in, we are raising our seed one right now. Um, 
but we have been venture backed and bootstrapped um, up until this time. And so, you know, I, I would say I officially really started this in November of 2019. And then I brought on my first hires um, May of 2020. Um, in between that, I gave birth. <laughs> <laughs> Subtly. Just brought a human <laughs> yeah. into the world. <laughs> Um, and also just spent a lot of time, you know, having all these conversations with the demand side and the supply side and just getting kind of everything set up and ready to go. But, um, you know, I had about $50,000, uh, from my pre-seed fund and I've made that last basically a year. So we have just been crazy lean startup mode. You know, (laughs) everything is a hundred percent organic you know, I have to really credit my content strategist, Adele, for that because she is just so fantastic. Um, and that's, you know, a key part of this is who you bring on your team to help you execute your vision. Um, but we, to answer your question, have just been, you know, we had a small pre-seed fund and we have just been religiously bootstrapping uh, up until now. I love it. And and to that point then, understand that, you know, when you are bootstrapping, you have to be really, you have to be a resourceful with everything you do, what were some of the things you were thinking of from how you were going to spend funds that gives you the most kind of bang for your buck? I really wanted to spend money on the hires. Um, I think the initial team, so your founding team, the people who are going to be the first people to help you execute your vision are some of the most important pieces of the, of the puzzle. And there's so much, right? They have to believe in the vision and the mission as much as you um, or close to it, right? They also have to be so comfortable and okay with chaos and with, you know, wearing a million different hats. So you can hire someone for one job, but their ability to do like a hundred is really important. And then they just have to be really good at what they do. So they have to have a number of years of experience in that particular role. And they don't have to have worked on the particular problem before. And actually, I think that it's better that they don't because they bring in different perspectives from different industries, different countries, different, you know, different nationalities. And that actually helps build a really robust and creative solution. But I spent have spent the money and really the only money I've spent has on the people and everything else from the technology to the marketing has been bootstrapped free resources. You know, there's so much awesome technology that exists out there that you can use for basically free. And that's exciting as an entrepreneur, because you don't have to hire a really expensive CTO or spend a whole bunch of, you know, half a million dollars building a telehealth platform before your problem is actually proven out. Because there are ways you can do that for free. Yeah. And there's a number of free tools, like, I mean, or very, very cheap tools, especially with like the no code movement that's been growing the last number of months, last year or two plus. And again, always had to reference Christian Pavarelli from We Are No Code, who was on the show, uh, and just understanding that the tools available, like Webflow, like you look at, uh, JetBoost, member, member stack, there's a number of different ones out there, Airtable even for creating companies and building all the landing pages, all the basic stuff you need to really have a company off the ground. It looks just like any other company, other any other website or anything else um, that are relatively cheap, inexpensive uh, tools, especially when you're scrappy, bootstrapping. Um, and I th- also think I talked to someone else recently, I forget which, which guest it was, but they were saying, I think they bootstrapped the first couple of years. And it, it really forces you, I mentioned being scrappy, but it really forces you just to be really, really aware and uh, all the time of, of resource allocation. And not that you don't do that once you raise funding, but it's easier to spend a little more freely when you have raised a few million dollars from a seed round or from a series A or something like that. Uh, and forget about like, oh, wait, let's be really mindful of how we're spending all this capital that really gets us the return we're looking for. I think that's really important too, because you actually can do a lot with very little. And I think especially where you're still proving out the market and building traction, it's really important important to not just throw a whole bunch of money at the wall. Because the other thing too, is if you are not really solving a real problem, then maybe that use of money is going to be needed. But if you're solving something real that people actually want to use and they're interested in and they're excited about, then some of that will be 
a moot point, right? Because you'll have people interested. Word of mouth is a huge thing. And that organic creation, that organic followers is to me, the golden ticket. Absolutely. And then, so if you look at even companies nowadays, looking at how how expensive it gets to spend on Facebook and Instagram and other platforms to acquire users. And if you don't have a brand built up or if you don't have some organic traction in some way, or whether it be like a referral program or word of mouth or whatever, where organically people are sharing, or even it's built into your product where you just have it inherently built in that people will share and it has some virality. It's so tough to, to scale, to grow uh, because ads are so expensive. And they continue to be more expensive and more crowded as there's more and more brands out there. So you have to have something else to differentiate. And an organic strategy is also you know, that type of thing to do. One thing I want to ask about, just because you started a number of different organizations, I mean, how have you used that experience growing or co-founding? I've been looking online, just like three or four different ones before before Hurdle. How does that impacted what you're doing now with Hurdle Health in terms of how you think about growing this organization? Yeah, I would say in the previous ones, it was actually a lot of learnings um, from the failures, right? Which I actually think is more important. And, you know, from the previous companies that I started, none of them were billionaire, you know, billion dollar companies. They did give me the money to, you know, to actually put me through business school, which helped. Yeah. But I would say, you know, what I really learned from those was probably three main takeaways. One, the co-foundership. Um, and who you're actually starting the business with could not be more important. Um, and the way I look at it now is it's a marriage. And I know everybody says that and that's super cliche, <laughs> but I, it's just, yeah. it's so true. You are in the trenches with this person or with these other people and you really have to not only really like them, but you also really need to, you know, just have a complementary skill set that you can bounce things off of each other. There has to be inherent trust there that, you know, you trust this other person to run with their vertical and you're there as a sounding board, but you really don't need to check up on them or you really don't need to, you know, question sort of their major moves because this person knows exactly what they're doing. Um, and the same for you. And, you know, I would say that's, that's probably the biggest one. And if you don't have a co-founder, um, that's okay too, because, there, there are plenty of examples of successful businesses where there's been single founders, and that's what I am right now. And in that case, what you need is an amazing founding team, right? So you need people that I mentioned before can believe in your vision, but also just really good at what they do. Um, so that's one big learning. The second is kind of how I started this conversation around actually fixing a problem. So I think, you know, entrepreneurs and people that are just entrepreneurial or have that entrepreneurial spirit get really excited about a lot of things. And it's always like, oh man, there should be a better way to do this. Or there's, you know, I wonder if something like this existed and they'll kind of run with that um, and start businesses on that. Well, again, you're not actually solving a real problem or you may not be really solving a real problem or you might be creating new problems. And so thinking really critically about what it is you're actually doing, what is it you're actually fixing? What problem are you solving? If this company didn't exist, what would happen to your users? Um, Would someone else come into the market and build something like this? You know, just thinking very, very critically from the beginning about what it is you're doing and why, the why, why are you doing it? Um, I would say that's the second big learning. The third is, I think the biggest takeaway on the technology piece is, again, what we talked about, (laughs) you just don't need to spend a lot of money or stress about hiring someone with a ton of tech experience if your product and your service is not a really high-tech company, right? So if you're building like wind farms out in the Midwest or, you know, something like that, that's extremely technically savvy, absolutely. You need a tech person. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Yeah. But if you're building like a digital platform or a way to connect, you know, one part of the market to another marketplaces, network organizers, you don't really need that much technology in the beginning. And so taking your focus away from, gosh, I don't have this stuff. I'm not sure I can build this. And changing your focus to, here are the parameters with which I can work. Let me see what I can actually create with what I have. Understanding that this this company, so Hurdle Health, you you have this idea, you have you see this problem as you mentioned. It's a massive problem for many women. 
how have you gone about spreading the word, getting the word out there, uh, getting more people to use the platform? Because ultimately that makes a bigger impact and also obviously helps you grow. But how have you gone about that, that side of things then so far? Yeah. So the first piece is hiring the right people. Um, and I already mentioned my content strategist, Adele, who is just, just totally gets the user's mind and voice. And she has a career in digital marketing. She was also an entrepreneur herself. And she has the ability to create this organic community. Um, so whether it's, you know, following the right influencers or micro influencers, putting out the right kind of content, having people engage with that, you know, getting users to write blogs or to make videos, to talk about their personal experience, having them send that out. That's really kind of the social media um, way of building a community. But there's also other avenues we've gone about in getting followers. One of them is through partnerships. So I have a community manager who um, is a recent grad out of college, and she's like our perfect user, right? Like this is this is exactly the user that we're trying to solve for. And so she has connections with, you know, about 80 colleges, Pan-India, and she's right now working with the Girl Up campaigns across each of those colleges to really get in front of the females and the women of those colleges. And so we've sent out surveys. We've had talks with a couple of those users to really understand what's important to them. Again, this why and what will they engage with? So some major topics have come out of those discussions and those surveys and those interviews of just understanding what it is that they want. The other thing we've done is partnerships with some corporations. So my favorite one is called Shiro's. And it's run by this incredible and inspiring woman, Sari Child, who has just been a voice of, of empowerment for Indian women for a number of years. And she created this platform in India. It's a female-only community. And it's basically like Facebook, but just for women and just for women in India right now. And she covers everything from you know, getting a job, there's beauty topics, there's some health topics. Um, she really covers everything that a woman cares about. She has 20 million users. <laughs> Whoa. 20 million. And okay, awesome, right? <laughs> so, you know, her and I actually were, I was introduced to her through a mutual friend. And honestly, I started that relationship with just, it was a mentorship. She has been kind of an informal mentor for me over the past year. Uh, she's a mom herself and I was a new mom. And so we talked a lot, like we would get on WhatsApp calls and just talk about it was like, what it was like being a mom, what it was, what it was like being a female entrepreneur, what it was like being a sole founder, what it was like raising your first round, what it was like getting your first customers, right? And just having someone to kind of connect with has been super important but then also creating a partnership with her 20 million users has been really helpful to us. So we're going to power her health program. We're going to offer our health sessions to her users. And we're going to, you know, ask, give, give AMAs where our physicians can come on and ask questions live to their users, you know, things like that, where it's a very genuine relationship, but it's a partnership at the end of the day. And yeah. with a woman who runs a company of 20 million users. <laughs> <laughs> Something I want to point out with that side of things, and, and just like as you're thinking, anyone's really thinking about growing a business, there are, there are certain things that you do that get you incremental increases in growth. And not that those aren't important. Those are important. And having like a foundation of those is great. But also to your point of partnerships, partnerships and collaborations and those types of uh, things have the potential for, you know, 10x growth, 20x growth, just way beyond what the incremental growth would ever be. And that's something um, I'm very much so right now thinking about with Just Go Grind, uh, just to give more context of like, I'm doing some of those kind of incremental things that on a day-to-day -day basis help help everything grow, but also looking at, you know, partnerships with whether it be publications, partnerships with people from the show who have access to certain people that would definitely help uh, on a 10x level is what I think of it as. And thinking about that from a business perspective, like always kind of have some of those in the pipeline because you just don't know what that's going to be able to do for you in terms of how much you can grow way beyond what you ever thought of with with partnering up with someone. Definitely. And And one thing I wanted to talk about too, as you're thinking about all the things you're working on potentially with this, I'm curious, it's like how... 
how is your time spent right now with Hurdle Health, Serena? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I love this. <laughs> so, you know, I am in the U.S. right now. All of my team is in India. My content strategist is in Paris. Um, you know, even my team in India can't meet each other because of COVID. So the very first part of my day, 7 a.m. through to, let's say, noon, is just with my team or with my physicians or really working with people in India. And that's just because of the time zone. Then the second half of my day is really spent on executing, thinking about the big problems. You know, I've got, um, there's this, there's this awesome book called The One Thing, and it's by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. And really it's about like, you know, and I've heard other people on your other podcasts uh, or on your other um, episodes talk about this. There's a million things that we as entrepreneurs need to do during a day. And so what I do is I actually have a personal and I have a professional list of three things. And those are the three things that have to get done for the day. And if those three things don't get done, then, you know, I'm either a bottleneck or I'm, you know, just not going to be able to move to Wednesday. Right. Um, So I really focus on what absolutely has to get done. Um, that means some things fall to the wayside, but at the end of the day, I think what you realize is those things either really didn't need to get done or they weren't as important as the three things that really matter. Um, and then of course there's the personal side. So I am a new mom, I am a wife. And so I really spend my mornings and my evenings with them. And so I think one thing that's really important, especially in building a health company is my own mental health and like success and happiness um, on a personal level. And so I find time to definitely do at least 15 to 30 minutes of a workout exercise every day. And then I also make sure my husband and I, uh, we shut off our work at, let's say around 4.30 PM. And from 4.30 through to, you know, basically when we go to bed, um, we spend with each other and we spend with our daughter. So we always go on a nightly walk with her Um, and she's seven months old. So, um, you know, we we go on a nice, nice walk around the neighborhood or around a park or something. And so making sure that you have time for yourself, for your family, for your loved ones is also really, really important because if you don't have those, then the company may as well go under right there. Right. Because I think for a lot of entrepreneurs that burn happens very slowly but once it happens, it's kind of over. Um, and so yeah. also trying to make sure that that piece of my life doesn't fall to the wayside either. And I'm not perfect. I make a ton of mistakes too. Not every day is perfect, but it's the reality. We all, we all do, Serena. And especially <laughs> entrepreneurs, there's just so many things happening. You're trying to balance it all. Uh, not even balance, just have harmony within everything you're doing. And and I think I really like what you mentioned of having that time block I think I've heard that a few different times of having a uh, you know a hard stop potentially, and it's always can be difficult with that clearly because things pop up and you know it falls on you to do some of those things. But at the same time, like for me, finding out that like having things scheduled, for instance, in the evening, whether it be like I don't know a walk, whether it be whatever something you're gonna do in the evening at like five, six, whatever time, then you know that's in the evening, so you know you have to get your stuff done before then. Right. Versus not having that, and you're like, well. I'll just keep working later if I don't get this done yeah. right now. Uh, and I think it leads to sloppy thinking. There will always be work. There will always be work. But you may not always have your health or your family. And that's something that I just keep reminding myself. Um, you know, the other thing, and and this is like, this would be a goal for me. So Tim Ferriss has this awesome concept of the four-hour work week, which is like probably mm-hmm. unrealistic for me right now is like as I'm building a business. Big Tim Ferriss fan, by the way. Yeah, but it's like, you know, it's great. Like if we could all get to that. And I and I think really the key around that is like, again, what is it that you absolutely have to do? And how can you kind of manage some of the other things, like the million other things that have to get done, but like maybe aren't as much of a game changer or deal breaker. And yeah. just reframing your mind to get into that mindset has been helpful. I am so glad you brought that up, Serena. Now I have to have a little tangent. Uh, so on that on that exact thing of the four-hour work week, and for people, for like the seven people who aren't familiar with it, uh, it's all about you know increasing your per-hour output is what he says. It's not necessarily that you're going to have it literally exactly a four-hour work week, um, but I love the idea of thinking of 
increasing your per hour output of things that are are important that actually move the needle um, and not being busy just for the sake of being busy, um, but being effective with what you're doing. And one of the things I think he had mentioned is, you know, if you literally were, were forced to only work, even like he, I think he mentioned even less than that at one point in time, like if you could literally only work a couple hours per week, like what would you do to yeah. keep the business going? Right. And when you, when you think of it from that perspective, then it really, it really just cuts out a lot, a lot of the bullshit yeah. where you're like, oh, all these things I'm doing that aren't really actually moving the needle. It's like, maybe I should consider stopping them mm-hmm. uh, to your point, because you want to have time for your significant other, time for your family, time for your health, uh, those big rocks per se that you have to kind of put in first. And you don't have that if you are just sloppy with your time. Um, so I am a huge Tim Ferriss fan. Um, and, and one of the things I want to just dive into just a little bit deeper on the recharging side of it. So you mentioned like four 30, I'm just curious, how did you decide on that time? Um, I think, uh, so four 30, so we have a nanny who helps us during the daytime. Um, and so we were just kind of limited on not only funds, but also her timing. And so, you know, just having a, from like seven 30 AM to four 30 AM have her there, you know, it, at 4.30, there's still a little bit of daylight as well. And then also with my daughter's schedule. So she goes to bed at around 7. And so 4.30 just gives us, you know, two and a half hours with her where it's just us. Um, yeah. I think that's really important. And it, honestly, that two and a half hours is also just a, it's a made up number. Um, it, sure. It's not right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get it. It's, it can be completely arbitrary, yeah. but it's fine. And what was the what is the workout typically you do uh, in the mornings? You know, I I'm a fan of free. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Love that, huge fan of that too. <laughs> and there's there's so many awesome resources that exist out there. So I was, um, gosh, I took advantage of the three month Peloton app uh, that they offer yep. for free during coronavirus. I don't have a Peloton bike. Um, but they had awesome, these awesome classes that you could take. And so I did that. Um, I'm now doing this like 30 day boot camp where it's literally like 15 minute workouts. Um, and they're free. They're all on, you know, video. There's also a ton on YouTube. Um, you know, I'm just a huge fan of free. And then also there's just natural ways outside. So my husband and I love to go biking. Um, you know, I, I hate running I'm, I, and I hate it because I'm horrible at it. Like I'm really, really bad at running. Um, like I just don't think I ever really learned how to properly run, um, but you know, there's that. Uh, and then of course we go for our walks. And so we usually like to do like a two or three mile walk with our daughter. Um, so, you know, there are different ways to get that free exercise. I love it. Love it. I'm always just curious on what people are doing because there's so many ways to go about it. But um, I had to ask. And, and and just one uh final kind of main question. I mean, looking back at you know your journey so far, which has been a little short for this current company with Hurdle Health, but obviously a lot more be- before that, just in terms of things, organizations you have started, a number of different things you've worked on. Uh, I mean, you've got business school. There's so many different things we could dive, dive into. But I just want for you to uh, have the chance to share anything else from your journey that you think would be helpful or useful for other other entrepreneurs, other aspiring entrepreneurs out there who are, are looking to build their companies? Yeah. You know, I would say that the biggest surprise and um, excitement for me has been in some of the recruiting. Um, you know, and I talked a little bit about if, if you don't have a clear co-founder, like that's okay. Um, I think that there are just some really awesome people that you can find by random ways. Right. And so you don't have to go the LinkedIn route to hire people or even, you know, putting on other job posting websites. Of course, those are helpful. And I have actually hired people through LinkedIn. Um, I'm very happy with those hires. But one of my favorite hires I actually found through a connection. So it was a, an initial conversation I had with the VC. And at this point, it was like super, super early in my journey. Um, And the woman that I spoke to there was like, I would love to help out in any way I can. Like, what do you need? I said, I need employees. (laughs) I need a marketing person. I need a content strategist. I need someone who can like just do all digital marketing, all that content for me. And she's like, okay, let me, let me think about it. And you know, you think, oh, like they're going to think about it. You're never going to hear back from them again. Well, she actually introduced me to her sister. And her sister and I had a conversation and unfortunately she wanted to do something else, but was like, you know, let me, uh, let me think about it. Let me see who I know that could be interested in this. 
And then through the sister, the sister introduced me to one of her best friends. Um, and it was a perfect fit. It was a perfect fit. <laughs> one of the key things that I really, really love and that's super important is the personal recommendation for people. Um, because, you know, if you've got a personal recommendation or even like that, you are connected, there's like three levels of connection or whatever to people. I mean, you'd be surprised with who you can be connected to just by asking for what you want uh, from anybody and everybody. Um, and so that's been a big surprise for me. And also the biggest excitement is just being able to kind of use the network, but also just really being able to ask for what I need and what I want and then being able to get it. Yeah. And with, with tools to be able to keep up with your network and think about who is also connected to other people, there's just so many ways to get connected to someone that would be helpful. I mean, if you ask, right. And yeah. that's, that's something I found obviously through the podcast and some incredible people that have come on and even, uh, yeah, referrals of referrals, referrals of referrals of referrals, even yeah, crazy thing about, and, and where can people go to learn more about hurdle health and all you're working on? Yeah. So we're, it's easy website. Um, it's just hurdle.health. So H E R D L E dot H-E-A-L-T-H. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You can find us on Shiro's if you're in India and you're a woman. Um, you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to have more conversations. And just my name, Serena Richard. Um, anybody who's interested, excited, motivated by this mission or heard something I said um, that you want to talk more about, like, please reach out. We always love talking to people. And I will be sure to link that up as well in the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast. So you can get that as well there. Serena, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.